I was just so motivated by giving people this unique experience with beer and doing something different. It kept me coming in. But there were a ton of times where I was pretty discouraged and bummed out because it was an awful long stretch. Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, good old-fashioned conversation. I'm not a beer connoisseur by any means, but wherever I go, or at least back when I did go anywhere, I always try one of the local craft brews. The beer business is really exploding growth around the country and around the world for that matter, and it's good to support entrepreneurs and local breweries, and it's not a particularly hard sell either when the beers are actually pretty good. But growing up in Canada, we did, of course, have some amazing beers, Labatt's Blue and Molson Golden, and of course, the classic Moosehead beer. Talk about a great name for a beer in Canada, right? But, you know, I I don't always remember the first thing I do or have done in various categories in my life, but I do remember the first time I ever had a beer. It was a Brador, and which is a Quebec beer. And I was at a restaurant in St. Agathe, which is a resort town north of Montreal. I was a teenager. The drinking age was 18, not 21 as it is in America today, but you know, I don't think I was 18 anyways. Uh, but everyone I was with was having a beer, and that meant I had no choice. I had to do the same. And I didn't even know much about beer. It was strong. In fact, the alcohol content was far above the five or six percent that's common today. It was a little sour. It was all around an inferior option of water, but I did drink that first beer and several others after that because that's what you do when you're with friends and you're a teenager and you just do what other people do and maybe you're not that smart. Luckily, I didn't overdo it, but I do remember that I actually didn't like that beer very much. But maybe beer really is an acquired taste because, you know, quite a few years from that time that I had the first Brodeur, I must say I have acquired that taste. Not for every beer, for every type every day, of course, but there is a beer type I really enjoy when I discovered it, and it's called Belgian White Beer. I don't know, maybe it's the citrusy scent or flavor to it. Maybe because it's light and blonde, then it's always a combination I favored. Or maybe because it just tastes good. And a favorite among the Belgian whites that I've ever had is Allagash, the brewery out of Portland, Maine. When I had a chance to do a podcast with the founder and CEO of Allagash, uh, Rob Todd, of course I jumped at the chance. And that's what this episode of the Sidcast is all about. After graduating from Middlebury College with a major in geology, Rob hung out in Colorado, did a few different things and moved back to Vermont and got a job actually washing out kegs at the Otter Creek Brewery in Vermont. And he learned a lot about beer. And he paid attention. He looked at what was going on. He wasn't just sitting there washing out these kegs. And he had an experience about beer, kind of almost like an epiphany about beer that he had never had before. And he decided he'd leave the job, steady pay that he needed. And he decided to go back to Portland and begin the Allagash Brewing Company. This is back in 1995. The brewery has since grown from a one-man operation into one of the top 50 craft breweries in the U.S. And it's actually earned a spot on Maine's Places to Work list for seven years running. 
Rob has been involved with the Brewers Association Trade Group, and he actually won a James Beard Award in the category of Outstanding Wine, Beer, and Spirits for 2019. And it turns out that Rob is a really interesting guy. And so in this episode of the SITCAST, we talk to Rob Todd about his life and how he built Allagash, talk about running a business during COVID, especially in this case, when most of your business disappeared overnight because you're selling beer to bars and to restaurants and those bars and restaurants have closed. One of the most impressive things that Rob told me about, and you'll hear a talk about this uh, during the episode, is that they had three years of work planned for new branding, new products, new marketing. And in light of the slowdown or shutdown, really, in COVID, they accelerated those plans, those three-year plans, and have concentrated all that into three months by necessity. Three years into three months. Think about that. It reminds me of another example, the National Health Service in England, United Kingdom, that adopted telemedicine after about a week in the early days of COVID, a change that almost certainly would have taken years upon years for a bureaucratic organization like that if it wasn't for the crisis of COVID. So changing business models, marketing campaigns, interactions with customers, many other things that companies absolutely have to accelerate and change to survive. And we're seeing it now at a pace that we've never seen it before, not by everyone. And I think some companies that are slow to move, the price will be higher than ever. But we're seeing a pace of change that's just really tremendous. So, okay, well, we got beer and we got business. And we have the B Corp. The B Corp is a special type of corporation. Allagash is one. Patagonia and Warby Parker are other examples where there's a series of very specific goals that they set out to fulfill. That's not just about generating shareholder wealth, which is all that a C Corp or traditional corporation worries about, but goals focused on communities and on customers and on employees. So let's sit back, have a beer, and listen to my conversation with Rob Todd. Welcome to the SIDCAST. This is Sid Finkelstein here in SIDCAST headquarters, my dining room table in Hanover, New Hampshire. And today our guest is Rob Todd. Hi, Rob. Hey, thanks for having me. And where are you, Rob? Uh, I'm at the brewery in Portland, Maine. The Allagash Brewery. When we were just chatting before we started, I was saying it's actually my favorite beer. So I'm sure I'm scoring points with you just with that. But it is. It's something, it's a special beer. You fell in love with it very early in your journey. But what is it that's so different about it? It's a really unique beer from a lot of perspectives and you know we can talk a little bit about the early days but this honestly was a really tough sell really for the first 10 years we were in business and you know the first thing is this beer looks different the belgians traditionally call this style of beer which is hundreds of years old white beer because when you pour it in a glass it's and i should have brought a glass with me i've probably got one up there somewhere but it's got a nice white veil to it because it's unfiltered so a lot of the proteins and yeast that are usually filtered out of beer are left in this beer and so it gives it that nice white veil it also gives it kind of a silky, spicy character. And another very unique thing about this beer is not only is it spiced with coriander and orange peel, but it's fermented with a very traditional Belgian yeast strain. So actually, you're making me think now about a couple of things. You talked about protein not being kind of filtered out. The most people think protein, they think, well, that's good, right? And then you use another kind of modern buzzword for healthy food, which is fermentation. Yeah, yeah. So are we saying that your beer is good for us? It's healthy. Absolutely. On top of being good for us because it's a great thirst question. 
and tasty. And it's unfiltered, so it's loaded with yeast, which is loaded with vitamin B12. Let's get to the beginning of the story. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. You're not long out of college, and somehow you get this part-time job, I think, washing kegs at the Otter Creek Brewing Company, yep. you know, not far from here in Vermont. So you just took the, the job because you needed a job, you wanted a job. Is that what happened, or was there something special right No, that basically it. So I went to school in Vermont. Am I allowed to say Middlebury on this? In Middlebury. <laughs> we have friends in Middlebury. <laughs> yeah. it's a, I hear it's a good place. <laughs> yeah. But I studied geology at Middlebury. And when I graduated, one of the things I was most afraid of was jumping into a career just to jump into a career. There was nothing at the time that really inspired me that I was really set on doing. And I was worried I'd kind of launch into a career and end up stuck in a career that I wasn't really engaged in and then be looking back at retirement age saying, you know, what did I do with the last... 30 or 40 years of my life. So rather than jump into a career, I went out west to Colorado and really just kind of did odd jobs. I had a lot of back of the house restaurant jobs and some construction jobs, which I had done a lot during summers in high school and college. And after two years in Colorado, I did feel like I was kind of spinning my wheels and I felt like I wanted to apply myself and focus a little bit. And so I moved back east and my tentative plans were to move to Vermont and maybe get an advanced degree in geology and teach geology. I think I honestly was just trying to, again, delay jumping into a career, and I figured going back to school mm-hmm. would do that. And the day I got back to Vermont, uh, it was uh, June 30th at about 4 p.m. I moved all my things into a room that I had rented in an old farmhouse. And once I got everything in, I called a friend of mine that I had gone to college with at Middlebury and just said, Ian, you know, I need a job. I'll do anything. I just need a paycheck. I've worked restaurant jobs, construction jobs. And he said, well, I'm working at this little local brewery. And my boss just today said, we need a part-time keg washer. So, I mean, I immediately thought to myself, I like beer and I could get paid. I said, I'd be there at eight in the morning the next morning. So I showed up knowing nothing about beer. I didn't even know these little breweries existed. Uh, There were about maybe 200 of them in the country at the time. These are craft beer breweries you're talking about. Yeah, little craft breweries. And they were just starting to pop up in the early 90s. And, you know, I literally, I didn't know what yeast was. Yeast was just like a powder you put in pizza dough when I was working at a pizza joint in Colorado. I didn't know malt was from barley. I didn't know hops grew on a vine. I mean, I knew nothing about beer. But really, from the moment I set foot in the brewery, I was just like mesmerized with everything that I saw. And they trained me, which back then was, you know, there's your boots, there's your gloves, there's the bathroom, there's the keg washer, you know, start washing kegs. And, you know, I spent two days washing kegs, but I literally Literally, I was like falling in love with everything I was seeing when I was washing the kegs. There was a mechanical element, you know, pumps and pipes and electrical equipment. There was an art element, creative element. I could see that people were, you know, formulating recipes for these beer styles that I'd never tried before. There was a science element. They had a little lab at the brewery and I studied geology in college, so I was interested in science. And I really felt like I was discovering a career that I didn't think could exist, that basically combined like all the things I was passionate about. And I literally went from not knowing what I wanted to do with my life when I walked in that door to 48 hours later knowing that I wanted to make
make beer for a living. I was completely in love with it. So the idea that you fall in love with beer and you like the whole idea, it doesn't automatically mean that the next step is, well, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to do this myself. There's a lot of other options that were possible, including digging into the science part of beer making yeah. or just working in a brewery and being part of that whole scene for a while. But you want to start your own company. Why is that? You know, I love learning new things. I love working with my hands. You know, when I was a kid, the only thing that used to engage me was taking stuff apart. You know, I could never focus on anything when I was a kid. And unless something in the house broke, like if the vacuum cleaner broke, I'd like beg for the vacuum cleaner so I could take <laughs> that apart. And when I was doing that, I was learning. I was working with my hands. I was doing something mechanical. I could really focus on it. And once I fell in love with the beer business, I was really intrigued by the possibility of starting my own business because I could see that as something that would like really engage me that I could become immersed in and focused on. And I just felt like working for someone else at that time in my life wouldn't give me that kind of level of like mm -hmm. focus and excitement and engagement. So I spent a year working at Otter Creek. Um, it was a great year. My boss, Lawrence Miller, actually was super supportive of teaching me everything that he could teach me in the brewery environment. He was very supportive of me going off on my own. This is a very collaborative, collegial industry, luckily. He even came and helped me brew my first batch of beer here. Wow. But he was just real supportive in me learning. And I told him, I said, I want to do this on my own. I'd love the opportunity to learn everything I can about the business. And he supported that. So I think, you know, in a nutshell, I looked at starting a brewery on my own as something that could really like capture me and engage my attention, which is something that I'd always kind of struggled with. And it's yeah, really it's why I didn't jump into a career when I got out of college because I was afraid I'm not going to be able to focus on this unless it's something that is really engaging me. That's just what I was thinking when you were saying that. You were going to do a few odd jobs to see. You didn't want to fall into a trap of doing something that you were going to love. So what's a little bit unusual about that is that you were self-aware about that at a pretty young age to know that. There's a lot of people that are very smart and might have tremendous careers, but they don't necessarily have that self-awareness. You know what I mean? That wherewithal to kind of understand themselves. You know, I don't know if I actually did understand myself that well at the time. This is more in reflection of how things mm, played out. I was aware that I was completely in love with everything I saw in the brewery and mm. maybe at least subconsciously self-aware enough to know that I needed okay. to go out and do it on my own. Nonetheless, it's a very important lesson for people who are listening, especially young people in college or just graduating from college, that we see this all the time. People are in such a hurry to just get going, get that next degree, get that job. They're going so fast that they don't have time to live. And later when you ask them, what do you wish you had done differently? That's what they tell me about. I really can honestly look back and we're coming up on our 25th anniversary here. I mean, there's been tough days for sure and some tough stretches. We can talk about those a little bit. And the stretch we're going through now is a real challenging, tough stretch. But I can honestly say I've woken up every day for 25 years and I, the moment my alarm goes off, I can't wait to get into work. You know, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, I don't feel like I've worked a day in the last 25 years. I just love yeah. it. And I can't imagine at this point in my life not being able to say that. I'm, I'm just really, I feel blessed to be able to say that. I think it's really yeah. important that when you choose a career, do something you love. Now you work crazy long hours. You might still do, but you work crazy long hours to get this business off the ground. Are you really saying that you couldn't wait to get started? Every day was great, yeah. even when you were working day and you had a young family as well, I think? 
think, was it really that same feeling, you know, in year one and year three and year five? It was. When I started, I didn't have a family. I honestly was working so many hours. I don't know if I could have had a family in the business at the same time. I was working well over 80 hours a week. The first year and a half, and I actually got run down. I did work too much. The first year and a half, I only took six days off. I took four Sundays off and one Saturday-Sunday combination. And I did get like completely run down. And my doctor finally got me to start taking Sundays off, which made an unbelievable world of difference. Now I try to take Saturday-Sunday off when I can. And I'm much, much more productive and focused. But it was massive hours getting going. Yeah. But the point is, you know, you loved it from the beginning, maybe too much because it was starting to affect your health. And I always say, you know, when you look at work and it doesn't feel like work, you just love it the way you just described. I used to say, you know, that a Sunday night was the same as Friday night for me because it was just great. Everything, I say everything. I'm sure scientists can go, archaeologists can go back and find a few days that I wasn't quite so happy. But yeah, I've been very, very lucky. And that's my advice to students about careers, to think about is there something you can imagine doing? And if you can't, you need to experiment a little bit. That would enable you to be able to say, you know, I haven't been working. It's not work. It's just, it's who I am. It's completely who I am as an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have, um, you know, growing up, were you surrounded by entrepreneurs or your parents? Were they entrepreneurial as well? My father was. Yep. I guess the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. It's funny because Uh I used to say in college, I'm never going to do what he does. I'll never work (laughs) those hours and I'll never travel that much. And all the nevers basically Mm -hmm. is how my life has unfolded. You know, I spend up till this COVID crisis, I was probably out of a month, three of the weeks I would be doing a trip. And I love that time in the road. You know, it's when I get to engage with our customers, you know, our beer drinkers, distributors, bar and restaurant owners, you know, liquor store owners. And I'm just intrigued to hear what they have to say, you know, as this business has evolved and engage with them, visit all the markets. And of course, you know, I didn't ever envision working the hours that I saw my dad work, but he loved his work also. And now I completely understand it. I didn't understand it then. But yeah, he started a business in the late 60s and ran it for, I think, 30 or so years. So actually, when I started, I knew absolutely nothing about business. It was funny. I was listening to a podcast with my daughter in the car, and the woman who was being interviewed said she went to the School of Hard Knocks. And I said to my daughter, I said, I went to the School of Hard Knocks. She said, I thought you went to Middlebury. Well, let me explain. But I mean, I knew nothing about business. When I started Allagash, I tried to keep it really, really, really simple, one beer only, just the Allagash white beer, draft only, local market only, and no employees. So very, very simple business because I knew that there was a tremendous amount of business that I didn't know. But my father was a great resource in those early years. If I, There probably wasn't a week that went by that I didn't run into a challenge, that I didn't pick up the phone and get advice from my dad. So what were some of the kind of big challenges that came up in, say, the first half dozen years? Because I think not a lot of people really liked the beer in the early days, which is kind of odd because it's such a big brand today. How did you deal with all that? I mean, it was kind of one challenge after the other. You know, back in those days, really almost for the first 10 years, I think half the time the phone rang, you know, I'd kind of cringe when the phone rang because usually it was a supplier that wanted money. You know, we can't ship you malt until you get your account current. I mean, stuff was breaking all the time. I'd never had a relationship with a bank. And in fact, at one point, and I've got the letter right on my, I framed it 
and put it on my wall just to remind me of a number mm-hmm. of things. But about five years into running the business, just a couple days before Christmas, my wife got a letter in the mail that basically said, all your accounts are frozen and your loans are all in, I think they call it the special assets division of the bank. It doesn't sound good. No, yet. otherwise known as the workout department. And I panicked and sure enough, that day at the brewery, I got that same letter. But that was one of the huge early challenges. They don't send the real kind of warm, fuzzy loan officers into those meetings. They put the mm-hmm. tough workout guys on those jobs. And, you know, I did call my dad and he had co-signed the loans at that point. So I called him and I was like, dad, I need your help with this one. And he came up from outside of Boston where he was living at the time. And we sat across from the banker and the banker just basically said, I want my money. How are you going to pay me? So my dad <laughs> helped me work through that one. And we asked for a little bit of time, which he gave us and went to a couple other local banks. And we were actually lucky because another local bank was willing to do the loan for 2% less interest and pay our existing bank off. The one thing about banks is that they're not interested in being in every business they loan money to. They didn't want to be in the beer business. And that's good because there's a real alignment of interest. They want you, they really do want you to succeed, to survive and pay them back, which is good. There are some investors that don't have quite that same attitude. So you had a loan from the bank and did you ever go to, you know, we talk about angel investors now and venture capitalists and all that. Is that ever part of the picture in terms of financing? It wasn't. And, you know, this is another piece of advice I got from my dad. He really pushed me to, if at all possible, not bring in any outside investors or partners. And I kind of deep down felt the same way as he did. It was always my worry and his worry that someone else at some point, even if initially they were 100% aligned with the culture I was envisioning and the direction I wanted to go with the brewery, at some point there was going to come a time where they weren't aligned. And that would potentially push me to make decisions or go in a direction that I didn't want to go. So I've always worked hard to keep this thing independent, family owned, no outside investors, no partners. And I've been glad to keep it that way. There are definitely downsides to going that route because... We went through a period, especially between 2005 and 2015, where we were growing very rapidly and that required a ton of capital expenditures and it ended up requiring a bunch of debt. So we arguably ended up after that period with a lot more debt than a company, than maybe the same company that had gone out and just gotten an investor. They didn't have the burden of that debt. And one trade-off to going that route is that we've had to be careful about how fast we grow and keep our growth incremental. We've been careful never to make big leaps that require 100% growth over the next three years or we're gonna be in trouble because it's all borrowed. And if we get to a point where for some reason we make a big investment and that growth doesn't pay off, we're gonna have a problem very quickly with the bank. So we've always tried to grow. We've always tried to stay family owned and bank finance and we've tried to grow things kind of incrementally and we've taken little steps. I think we probably could have grown a lot faster, though, with a private equity partner. That's the trade-off when you have more money in, but you lose some control, potentially could lose some control, exactly what you just said. So you develop really a new product. It's not that you invented wit beers, white beers. There's a legendary product from Belgium, but and there were actually in the U.S. white beers as well. But you were seen really as producing and selling something different than almost everybody else out there. And there wasn't, I think, a lot of early demand for it. And so the question is, how did you get these bars and restaurants? I mean, how kind of door-to-door did you 
you have to go? And what did you have to do to get customers, in this case, particularly bars and restaurants, to say yes? Well, Start carrying your product. Yeah, first of all, one of the reasons, well, when I started, I think I mentioned at Otter Creek, there were maybe 200 breweries in the country. When I started, there were maybe 300, which at the time actually sounded like a lot of breweries because in the 80s, there were under 100. So the number of breweries had more than tripled. And I kind of even thought I was a little bit late to the game and I was told I was late to the game, which sounds funny now because there are 8,000 breweries. But <laughs> out of those 300 breweries, there were breweries brewing amazing beers, but they were almost all in the British style, the German style. Style or the Pacific Northwest pale ales, which were becoming popular at the time. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I'd be spending about a year building the brewery, kind of cobbling it together on my own, cutting the drainage trenches in the floor, doing a lot of the welding, plumbing, just a ton of work putting this thing together, you know, long hours, and hopefully my lifetime running it. And I really didn't see the point in going to all that trouble only to make a beer that people could already get. Kind of what's the point? So I was looking to give people as unique an experience as possible with whatever I was making. And I looked at the Belgian brewing tradition, which I discovered at Otter Creek as an opportunity to do that. The Belgians use unique ingredients in their beers like fruit, unmalted grains, spices, a lot of real interesting brewing techniques with wild yeast and bacteria, oak aging. So I looked at it, all of those ingredients and processes that the Belgians use as an almost unlimited palette of ingredients to give people an unlimited experience of beer. I mean, what you're saying really is kind of classic strategy, right? You're going to go to market, you do what everybody else is doing. They have deeper pockets, they have established relationships, customers already know who they are. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And especially for a small business, you got to create a niche, something that's a little bit different. But you know what I'm curious about is, maybe it's a bit of an aside, but back to kind of the nuts and bolts of beer, but why is it Belgium came up with this? When you think about beer, you think about the Germans or the Czechs, yeah, yeah. or even the British for that matter. What happened? Well, Belgium's kind of sand... Like, number one, a lot of brewing traditions evolved by the ingredients that were available where the beer was being made. And for Belgian-style wheat beer, there was a lot of wheat available in the area where these beers originated, the, the Hoogarden area. And also, I kind of look at it as Belgian is almost like a hybrid beer-wine culture because Belgium's sandwiched between Germany and France. So it picks up a lot of influence from beer culture in Germany, but it also picks up influence from, from wine culture. You know, and of course, wine uses fruit. Wine uses different yeast strains. So I feel like it's almost like a beer-wine hybrid. And, you know, it, interestingly enough, I also, I wasn't looking at the white beer as a business opportunity or a niche. I felt like doing something unique would just inspire me more and engage me more. And I think, honestly, in the long run, that served us very well because it became a niche that we were known for. But for the first 10 years, get, circling back to your question, it made things tough. It was a grind. I used to walk into accounts with this white beer and pour it in a glass back in the 90s. And the bartender would look at it and say, what's wrong with this? You know, why does it look like this? They'd never seen cloudy beer. And they'd be like, why does it taste like this and smell like this? And mm -hmm. yeah, it was like a lot of door to door explaining the beer, explaining it to distributors, explaining it at beer dinners. And it was a grind. So bartenders would look at it and they'd ask you about it. It tastes good. I know taste is taste, right? Everyone's a little bit different. So maybe because it was a different taste for communities around beer all the time that for them it was a kind of a foreign taste is that what it was or did the taste doesn't 
appeal to everyone. Where was this resistance coming from? Was it based on taste and product and some perception of quality? Was it based on, oh, we have so many people coming and sell us some new beer and we don't have time for that? Or, you know, we know what sells and we don't need to any new hotshot to tell us. I think it stretched beer out of people's comfort zone. So I think back at the time in the 90s, most people, I mean, this is what I grew up with in college and after college, just the dumbed down American style Pilsner that had just been completely commoditized. I mean, that's what beer was for me. And it was nothing else. It wasn't anything outside of that. And it was a real stretch for me. And I think a lot of people discovering the British style pale ales and the real, at the time, highly hop American style Pacific Northwest pale ales, and even some of the traditional German beers like the Bach beers. That at the time was a stretch for people, but this was three times as much of a stretch. And I think it was almost like too much. It, it almost just didn't look or taste like anything people thought of that would be associated with beer. So what was the turning point? I mean, what happened? It took about 10 years. And I don't think, like I can peg the turning point from a time perspective. It was about 2005. That's when things really pivoted after 10 years. But as far as what caused it to turn, I think it's almost like that flywheel analogy where it's like lots of little pushes over many, many years on the flywheel. It finally had momentum. So it was me spending time in the trade talking about it to customers and distributors and retailers. There were some other white beers that came out. Coors launched the Blue Moon series of beers. A little bit of a different beer, but also cloudy. So that was helping people get familiarized with it. There were Belgian breweries that were bringing the Belgian styles into the country. And I think also, after 10 or so years, once beer had already been stretched for people, people were ready to be stretched even more. So I think it's just all of those things just adding up, giving it momentum. And I feel like once things get a certain amount of momentum, it gets hard to turn that around. And yeah. that's kind of how I feel things played out. The thing I wonder about is how you personally dealt with kind of this slow, long slog. 10 years is a long time and keep from getting too discouraged and just keep getting back up, you know, every day being a great day. How did you do that? It gets back to, I love what I'm doing. I believed in what I was doing. And honestly, I think if I'd gotten in it just to do a lot of volume, or if I'd gotten in it because I said, this is going to be a niche and it's going to take off, I think I would have maybe lasted five years. I don't think I would have lasted 10 years. But really the reason I got in it was I loved what I was doing and I really believed in this like at the time mission to give people a unique experience with beer. Now we've added a lot of things to our mission and culture. Those things were always there, but we've put them down on pen and paper now. And we can even talk about, we, we recently became B Corp certified, which very much is in alignment with these things that are so important to us, community environment and the employees. But I was just so motivated by giving people this unique experience with beer and doing something different. It kept me coming in. But there there were a ton of times where I was pretty yeah. discouraged and bummed out because it was an awful long stretch. Yeah. Employees these days, they see pictures from back then and it's kind of charming because it's a lot of old dairy tanks. And, and I think there's like a certain amount of kind of like nostalgia and appeal. And they'll say, it must have been so cool in like the good old days. And I explained to them, I'm like, they weren't the good old days. I assure you. you know? yeah, it's a lot more fun now is what you were it telling It is a hundred times more fun now. Were you able to lean on your dad during that time as well? Yeah. 
I'm sure he must have been a big support through that time. Absolutely. And he would look at it and look at the numbers and say, just remind me, he's like, you've got something here if you can just get this to kind of get some traction. He's like, you really do have something here. And I stuck with it. If we were still grinding it out like we were then, I'd probably be... I don't know if anyone would be interested in talking to me about the business and interested in the business, but I think I'd probably still be doing it. See, I just that, have a lot idea. more gray hair and I got a fair amount well, I got a fair amount of gray hair. That idea I find really interesting, you know, that someone who's who creates a business and builds a business. I interviewed many CEOs and some kind of legendary entrepreneurs, the Ralph Lawrence of the world, Larry Ellison's and some of these giants. And I used to say about Ralph Lauren, of course you don't know, because he's come worth many billions of dollars and Ralph Lauren is, you know, doesn't get much more successful than that. But I would say that he would have kept on going. He would have kept on doing that, even if it didn't become this kind of gigantic global brand that's made so much money that in fact there was just nothing else he wanted to do and I feel like that's probably more true than not for a lot of the most successful entrepreneurs that I've come across and an alternative view of entrepreneurship which is well let's find a niche let's find a business and let's create the business plan let's raise some money and let's flip it and sell it after two five ten years or whatever it happens to be which is a perfectly fine way to make money and maybe it works maybe it doesn't but it's almost like you're playing a totally different game and I'm sure you've seen that I mean, we can see what side of that equation you're on But for people listening and that are entrepreneurially inclined, I think it's good to think about what side of that fence you're really going to be on. No question about it. And I mean, I think that's really relevant. That concept is really relevant to what we're going through now, because this is a tough stretch for this business. And one of the things that's motivating me almost more than anything else now to get through this thing like as quickly and healthy as possible is we just have so much opportunity as a company, I think over the horizon of 10 to 20 years to do more for the community, do more for our employees and be more sustainable. I see huge opportunity on those fronts for this company. And in a lot of ways, I feel this obligation to get back healthy again. I mean, philanthropy is a super important part of our culture. And I think we've got an obligation to give back to the community that's been so supportive of us over the years. And last year alone, we gave about $360,000 back to the local community. And we're not that big a company. We're only a 150 employee company. We're pretty proud about being able to give $360,000 in one year. You know, we established a pediatric nurse scholarship fund. We've donated to affordable arts in the community, to food insecurity, sustainable agriculture, and obviously losing the volume that we've lost during this crisis is going to affect how much we're able to give this year. And we've been successful in figuring out ways to give other than just writing checks to some of these organizations. But the sooner we can get back up and healthy and manage our way through this, the sooner we're going to be able to start contributing to the community. So those things are really motivating me right now. Right. And that's part of the purpose, really, of the B Corp that you mentioned earlier as well. I'm not sure how many companies are now B Corps, but there's some pretty well-known ones. Everyone knows Patagonia is one of the Mm -hmm. really early adopters of the B Corp and, of course, Allagash is as well and a bunch of others. And so B Corp means that you, the bottom line is not a single bottom line of financial profitability. It's a multiple bottom line, isn't it? Yeah, so we need to basically take an assessment from a third party, B Corp slash B Labs, that says when we make decisions, we are not just considering our shareholders. And, you know, this is a family owned business. I still own this business, but I am required to not just consider the shareholders when we make decisions 
but consider the community, the employees, and the environment. And those three things, community, employees, and environment, they are so aligned and the B Corp philosophy is so aligned with our culture here. I honestly thought we would very easily pass their assessment. It's a very in-depth assessment mm-hmm. that takes quite a bit of resources, well worth it, but it takes quite a bit of resources to go through this exercise the first time. You need to score a minimum of 80 out of 200 points. I thought we would very easily pass. We barely scraped by. I think we scored mm-hmm. around 82 or 83, which... Why is that? Well, what happened? number one, I really look at it as opportunity because if we improve that score, we're doing better on that community, employee, mm-hmm. and environment front. So we're going to work hard towards improving the score. But a lot of really interesting things. I think one of the ones that I was fascinated about, a lot of the things that we were doing here, we weren't documenting. And B Corp requires you to document document these things and have plans for these things. And that was interesting to me because I do really believe you can't manage what you don't measure. So if we're just saying, for example, let's do everything we can to cut down our water usage per barrel of beer we make. And we actually were at the point where I thought we'd score very high with that because we're kind of at the cutting edge with water reduction. We actually got no credit for that whatsoever because we didn't have a written plan for water reduction. So now we're putting in a plan for water reduction. And I think because of that plan, we're going to be even more successful with water reduction and we'll score higher on the B Corp assessment. That's a really interesting philosophy you just described from the B Corp or B Lab side, isn't it? That if it's important, you're going to put in place a dashboard. You're going to have the metrics. You're going to manage to it in the same way that you manage towards a number in a financial sense, whether that's market share, profitability, or what have you. So it's pretty smart, actually. And it's throughout the organization. It includes HR policies as well, for an example. Mm -hmm. So there are a number of things. And I feel like, again, we have a very progressive HR department here. We have very strong employee benefits, but there are going to be some additional things we're documenting and working on now that we're engaging with B-Labs. So you touched on the crisis. Let's see if we could dig into Mm -hmm. a little bit more what's going on in our world of coronavirus. So when did you know this was really bad and had to make big changes in your company? So this happened like unbelievably fast. And it's a little bit ironic because I've got an advisory board consisting of four people people. And I very often take their advice just with more directional strategic advice. And one of the things they had asked me to do or thought it would be worthwhile for me to do, and this is literally in February, I had my advisory board meeting. They said I really should do some kind of shock absorption analysis. Like what happens if you lose half of your business? You know, How long can you last? What kind of resources would you need? What would you do to respond? And I kind of thought I can do this, but what the heck could cause me to lose half of my business, you know? The week of, I think it was around the 6th to the 13th of March, it Mm -hmm. seemed like COVID was going to be significantly disruptive to our business. And we started talking about maybe ratcheting draft production back by 25 or so percent. And just to put it in perspective, 65% of our business is draft. And 5% of our business is bottles and cans in the restaurant and bar channel. So we're 70% restaurant bar channel. So the week before, you know, the week of six or whatever to the 13th, we were talking about maybe having to reduce production by 20%. Monday the 16th, every single one of our distributors called us and they said, cancel all keg orders. 
one. Every single one. All 30 of our distributors called that day and said, cancel our CAG orders. So we literally in one day lost 65% of our business. And we knew we were also losing 5% of our business because essentially every restaurant and bar in our 17 state plus DC footprint had been closed down. So it was an unbelievably abrupt, like unimaginable shock to the business. And the other unfortunate thing that happened, you know, I had been traveling the week before. That day I ended up with coronavirus. So yeah, so I managed the first two weeks of this remotely. Luckily I was in isolation because I'd been traveling, but I managed it the first day with a significant fever. So it seemed like a lot was coming unraveled. And we spent the first week, that week of the 16th, just doing really intensive kind of view from 30,000 foot cash flow analysis just to basically see how long our cash would last. And our initial assumptions, and I think a lot of people's assumptions at the time were all the bars and restaurants would close for two months and then everything would kind of get back to normal. Well, 45 or so days into it, we realized that this thing was going to last a lot longer than we initially expected. So what does a business do when you lose almost three quarters of your business in the blink of an eye? Luckily, and this gets back to something we were talking about a little earlier, we've never made these big CapEx investments that absolutely require us to grow 50% for the next couple of years in a row. We've always been very incremental. We've been careful with cash. We've been careful about getting too leveraged because all of our financing comes from the banks. So we luckily weren't highly leveraged and we had some availability on our line of credit. So that was in our favor. Luckily, the only expansion we had just made was a high-speed canning line, which we had put in just about six months before, which turns out to be a huge asset for us now, which we can get to. But so that was in our favor. We also were able to find about 20% of our budget. Some of it naturally got eliminated at the lower production levels, but we were able to cut between 20 and 25% of expenses right off the bat of expenses we had planned for 2020. So we immediately froze all hiring, which was set to start only about a week after this thing hit us. So lucky timing on that. We decided to do no merit increases for compensation. We found a lot of marketing cuts, no sales traveling whatsoever. That's a huge part of our budget. Eliminated incentives. So we just went down and we found a ton that we were able to cut. One of the things that was really important to us, and at the time it seemed like we were only going to have to survive for a couple months at these real low levels and things would come back. We felt like with those cuts, we'd be able to manage our way through two to three months of this and not have to let anyone go, not have to furlough anyone or lay anyone off. We did reduce hours in some departments, and luckily there were some social safety nets that kind of backfilled that compensation. But our plan was to try to get through this thing without any layoffs or furloughs. And Mm -hmm. luckily, about two weeks after we made that decision, when it started to become apparent this was going to drag on more, we were able to secure a PPP loan which was huge, especially given the fact that we had made a commitment to keep everyone on the payroll. Right. So your staff, your employees must really, I don't know, of course, appreciate and respect that. But because there's a lot of companies 
for very practical reasons, just could not or would not do that. It's completely understandable going in whatever direction your company has to survive. But they must have been worried, though. They must have been concerned. I think they were. One of the things that luckily we have done, and this is very much in the spirit of B Corp, and it's in the spirit of our culture, we've always worked on transparency and communication here. Mm -hmm. We have all staff meetings at least twice a year. We do a weekly newsletter. We do quarterly updates from the management team to the whole company. So there's always been a spirit of transparency and trust, but we really focused on just constant communication and honesty and candor. And the whole staff was hearing from me at least once a week. My initials are RT, so I do RT's update week one, RT's update two, RT's update three. And I gave them the straight dope on how things were going. Here's what's happened to our business. You know, we're going to figure this thing out, but it's going to be tough. And I feel like everyone here really did feel like they knew what was going on and they felt the sense of security. There were no guarantees with what was going to happen two months down the pike, six months down the pike, but they knew we had a commitment to do everything we could to keep everyone on board. So is business starting to come back from your point of view? A little bit, I think, but to what extent? Well, so it's interesting. Our initial forecast was two months of losing over 50% of our business and then maybe a month of losing 25% and then a restoration to 90% for the last five months. That looked pretty naive a month or so into this crisis. It was apparent it was going to drag on much longer. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that was unfolding at the time, we have this great program at the brewery for innovation where anyone at the brewery, if they have an idea for a beer, whether you're in the accounting department, the retail store, sales department, production, if you have an idea for a beer, you can go to our pilot beer team and brew it on a little 10-gallon system. So we literally had this quiver of probably two or 300 recipes at the ready. Wow, really? Yeah, and additionally... We realized we were not diversified. We knew we were 70% in the restaurant and bar channel, and we had this long-term four-year plan to be more diversified and use a lot of these beers that we had developed with our innovation program to build the off-premise space. So basically come out with a bunch of new cans and a bunch of new packages, put together a chain team to sell to chain grocery, and really drive this side of the business and get more diversified. So we realized we kind of had this four-year plan to diversify. We had beers developed, we had artwork, we had packaging, everything. But it was a two, three, four-year plan. We said, this thing looks like it's going to drag out six months, a year, maybe longer. We can either literally go into hibernation mode and probably have to let a bunch of people go to survive this thing and just kind of wait it out, which is completely out of our control, or we can get in the driver's seat. And when the restaurant bar channel comes back, it comes back. I mean, I'll be the first one at the bar drinking a pint of Allagash white beer. I can't wait. But that's, it's completely out of our control. So let's get in the mm-hmm. driver's seat, control what we can control, and let's compress this three-year plan into literally three months. And we're about halfway through executing that. we got a lot of cool new packages and beers coming out. You know, we've restructured our sales team. We're putting our new canning line to work. It's been a complete, rapid, like overnight retooling of the company. And the sales are starting to come back. We're starting to see the impact in off-premise space, grocery stores, liquor stores, etc. We're seeing success there. 
and restaurants and bars are slowly starting to open. So we're going to figure this out. It's a great example, really, of innovating in the face of giant headwinds. And the way you're describing it is that is the only way to face those headwinds. Otherwise, you're going to, to keep the metaphor going, that the risk of capsizing is going to just, you just be buffeting through the waves and hopefully you won't capsize. But, and I really like that idea as someone that, you know, works with some companies on these types of issues and also sees fear in a lot of other leaders today when I talk to them. And I understand fear in many ways, and it's actually quite logical given where we're at. But fear for the business because of being afraid to take a risk, to just retrench because things are going... The trend line for revenue is just plummeting and therefore we have to cut costs. Now you've done that, you described that, but you've got the other side, which is innovating. I don't know that applies to every company out there. Of course, nothing does apply to every company, but if it's possible, it certainly should be something. And it's got to empower, energize a lot of the people who work for you, I would think. I mean, they must be really excited. Absolutely. And it's interesting. I was in that fear. I was more in that fear worry, we can't control this. And honestly, a lot of the kind of poor me, because we're a brewery that's really heavily skewed towards that restaurant and bar channel versus a lot of people we compete against. So kind of poor me, why me? When's this whole thing going to be over? And when we decided to accelerate this plan and get in the driver's seat, it energized me. And I completely, literally in a couple days, when the team that reported me decided we were going to make this thing happen, it energized me. And that feeling it completely went away. The kind of worry went away. The poor me thing went away. And, you know, now we're looking at it as a challenge that's absolutely energizing us. And when we do get through this and come out the backside of this, we will be farther along on a plan that we already had anyway than we would have been in the absence of this COVID crisis. Right. You know, the other thing that happens is now you've changed the kind of a fundamental process of how business gets conducted at Allagash by just pressing on that accelerator all out in terms of the speed of going from three years to three months. Well, you know, people get used to that and they don't like to go back. And I've heard lots of stories like that in a lot of companies, a lot of organizations, like the National Health Service in England is a great example, right? They are so, I've worked with them, they're world-class healthcare, of course, tremendous organization, but so bureaucratic. And they moved to telemedicine within days and would have taken them a few more years to study the thing before they'd ever go. But they did it because it's like literally, in their case, life and death. And I think that, you know, businesses that are doing these types of things, like what you just described, they're not going to be able to go back even if they want to go back. I think employees are going to revolt and it's going to become a competitive advantage. It's going to become essential. And not everyone is doing it. And business is not going to be the same when we come to the other side of this. I agree. So what's the biggest challenge you're dealing with right now, Rob? I mean, I think in all one thought that comes to my mind I'm very glad that I took this approach for the last five years and this is a real cliche but just delegating and I realized the last few years that I'm okay like mediocre at doing a lot of things and that's kind of how I survived the first 10 years like I can weld but not weld well you know I can I can do some functions with HR but not real well and refined you know I know finance but I sure don't know it as well as the guy who who's running our finance department right now. And I've been delegating more and more to people who are just really, really, really good at doing those things. And now I am just unbelievably glad that I did because stuff is coming at us so fast. I mean, just at an unimaginable pace, almost on an hourly basis. 
And there is absolutely no way, like humanly possible, that I would be able to deal with all those things. If I were still immersed in all the detail and all the departments, I would be on complete overload and unable to manage our way through it. And I'm lucky, I've got crew of people that run each of the departments here. And they're borderline overload, but they're able to process everything in their department and react very, very well in a very, very refined manner. And in terms of personal challenge for me, I almost feel like a little bit guilty. I think they're working really, really hard doing things that I'm just not really qualified to do in managing our way through this. And I'm honestly not having to work that hard through it. I think the for me, the challenge has been more just like directional, like how do we come at this? I think one of the big pivotal decisions we made was just me and then hopefully I was going to get buy-in from the crew reporting to me. How do we switch these gears from making a decision of do we go into hibernation mode or do we go into acceleration mode? And once we decide to go into acceleration mode, it's really them doing the work to make it possible. I mean, they're the experts in marketing and the experts in HR and the experts in finance that are going to make this possible. I don't know if that answers the question. What it makes me think of is, in the way you describe those first 10 years doing everything, the welding and everything else, it's almost like a survivalist out in the woods. If you can't take care of what has to get taken care of, you're not going to make it. So you have to do everything. Yeah. This is a bit of an overstatement, but it's an interesting idea that the job of the entrepreneurial and the entrepreneurial CEO is to go from doing everything to doing nothing. Yeah. Now, doing nothing is obviously, and there are key decisions that have to be made. And especially with dealing with COVID, that representation as the leader to provide confidence and support and love to the people around you is just that cannot get outsourced. But in some ways, there's some truth to that. You know what I mean? Going from having to do everything to doing nothing. It's a different way than many people think about entrepreneurial or any job for a CEO, I think. Yeah. And, you know, and maybe another a more concise answer to your question. There are so many challenges from every front. I mean, I can't even list them right now. And they're coming at us so fast. But most of them get handled 10 times better than I could have ever handled them before they even get to me. But I think your point of the support and trust and communication is really, really important. So we're almost out of time. I'd like to ask a question I ask just about everyone about advice. And rather than being kind of generic advice, it's advice to yourself. And you shared some of the earlier years and the early days in the brewery in, in Vermont and being open and thoughtful about trying to do a few different things before settling on things on that one career. But the advice is if you can walk up to, you know, the 21 year old, let's say Rob Todd, and just kind of lean over and say, you know, Rob, things are going to work out. But if there's one thing you want to know. If there's one thing you want to think about. If there's one bit of advice that I could give you, you really want to listen to this. What would that advice be to your own 21 year old self? I guess having values like being clear about what your values are and really living those values and focusing on those values. And, you know, again, I'll get back to what we touched on a little or what I was touching on a little bit. I think that's one of the things that's getting me through this crisis right now is I feel like there's so much more important work that we have to do with engaging with the community and being a positive contributing member to the community. I mean, the Black Lives Matter, which is obviously a very important topic now. Even us, we made a statement on that front that I was very proud of on June 2nd that's aligned with our values, aligned with our company values. We have an immigrant community here 
in Portland that's very vibrant. And we're going to engage with that community. And we feel like we can do a lot of good working with and engaging with that community. And we've been engaging with that community leading up to this. So I think engaging with the community in sustainability, creating a great place to work that people are really passionate and proud. So I think having values, understanding what the values are, it was huge in getting me through the first 10 years. And I think it's really important in getting us through this current crisis. So Rob, this issue around Black Lives Matter is really finally become a major issue around the country and even around the world. And Maine is a small state like New Hampshire and is not the most diverse state in the world. But I know it's something you care a lot about. And so can you share a little bit more about your thinking and what you're doing and Allagash is doing about this it, issue? It is. Yeah, it is important to us. And there have been a lot of topics historically over the last 25 years that we haven't gotten involved with. We've just kind of taken the position, let's stick with beer. But we really felt an obligation in this situation to weigh in. And we made a statement on June 2nd that is very aligned with how I feel. It's very aligned with our company culture. And it actually, we have a pretty broad audience. We reach with social media over a quarter of a million people. We've also been doing work on some other fronts. We have volunteer time off available to employees. So employees can do 16 hours a year of volunteer time that we will pay them for. And we're allowing them to use their volunteer time hours to peacefully march in Black Lives Matter protests. And another really cool project that's come up. There's a brewery in San Antonio, Texas called Weathered Souls, and they're doing a project called Black is Beautiful. It's a Black is Beautiful beer, and they're asking brewers to collaborate with them in brewing the beer. So we're going to be brewing this beer soon, and all of the profits from the sales of this beer are going to go towards organizations locally here in Portland that are fighting for racial justice. So we're going to be doing things on a number of fronts, and it's something which we feel is very important to us and very aligned with our culture. It's interesting that there is this kind of connection across the country, in your case, within your own industry, to try to do yes, something. Yes, absolutely. Well, Rob, thanks for sharing, and again, for being on the SIDCast and telling us your story of how you started, what you dealt with, and what you're doing with COVID, what you're doing now as you think about the Black community, and wish you the great luck in getting to the other side of this and continuing to make that amazing Allagash White. I think I'm going to go get one right now. All right. Hey, thanks for having me. It was fun chatting. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the SIDCast. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes. And please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sitcast is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.